Uh, Steve Corn is my name. I have the pleasure to serve as one of the elders here and I uh, have the opportunity usually about once a year to stand up here and preach. It's a big task and um, makes me a little nervous because the gospel is important, right? I don't want to misspeak. Um, so say a, a quiet little prayer in your heart for me right now. I, I, will, I will also just say my wife is in the back with the kids, and I'm not sure what that means for you guys, that she chose to be in the back when I was going to preach, you know. <laughs> so say a little quick prayer. God, I pray that you would use this time to speak to us. Let your word be clear and let our hearts be open. In Jesus' name, amen. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is what Chad asked me to preach on uh, in the middle of this Fruit of the Spirit series. And so faithfulness is where we are headed. Uh, he mentioned earlier Joshua chapter 9 is where we're going to be. But I want to start out. Um, the word faithfulness, I, I don't know about you, but typically when we hear that word in our culture, I think marriage. Probably I hear unfaithfulness more often than I hear faithfulness, right? So I want to read, uh, and when it comes to our relationship with God, it's not just the big things that we're supposed to be faithful to. It's also the little things, the things that kind of sneak up on you with our relationship and our, our marriages. It's the same way, right? It's just not just the big things, but also the little things. So I want to start out with this quote from a book that I found. I've not read this book, so I can't recommend this book, but I do like this quote. All husbands are unfaithful in one way or another. Lillian and Daisy glanced at each other with raised brows. Father isn't, Lillian replied smartly. Mercedes responded with a laugh that sounded like crackling leaves being crushed underfoot. Isn't he, dear? Perhaps he has stayed true to me physically. One can never be certain of these things. But his work has proved a more jealous and demanding mistress than a flesh and blood woman could ever be. All his dreams are invested in that collection of buildings and employees and legalities that absorb him to the exclusion of everything else. If my competition had been a mortal woman, I could have borne it easily, knowing that passion fades and beauty lasts but an instant. But his company will never fade or sicken. It will outlast us all. If you have a year of your husband's interest and affection, it will be more than I've ever had. Lisa Klepas is the author, and the book was It Happened One Autumn. Unfaithfulness sneaks up on us. I don't imagine in this story that this man's work was something he was uh, intending to get in the way of his relationship with his wife, but it happened. Unfaithfulness is cheating, as, as you know, that, that little passage mentions. But it's also work. It's the little things that sneak up on us. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus on a little bit this morning. When we hear of unfaithfulness, our hearts just cry out, right? In, in the context of marriage in particular, you know, you find out somebody's been cheated on and your heart just is burdened for them. We want justice. Betrayal is personified in unfaithfulness. With God, I'm a betrayer. It's not the big things usually, it's the little things. But I have betrayed him over and over. 
The good news is that that's not the end of the story. Due to our relationship, he's faithful. And he chooses to love me in spite of my unfaithfulness. Think about marriage vows. It's choosing to stay true, to stay together, to always return to them, to fight on the side of them, to defend and protect, to seek the best for, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. This is the way that we've chosen to draw up the covenant of marriage. These are the vows that we take. This is what we're to be faithful to, right? This is what we, we stand in front of God and everybody in our weddings to say, this is what we're going to be faithful to do. But what about God? We put in all kinds of effort, spend hours writing marriage vows, trying to define our faithfulness for our spouse, giving ourselves boundaries and goals. But how much should we consider our vows to God? What are the requirements for faithfulness? If you had to write your vows to God, what would they say? What would they say? What would you commit to? God's requirements to be in his presence. He's holy and just. His requirements are perfection. So our list is huge, right? It's impossible. This is the Fruit of the Spirit series. We've been given faithfulness. If we have the Spirit, we've been given faithfulness, right? So let's look at Joshua chapter 9. Go ahead and turn there. What we're going to look at here as you turn... We're going to look at how vows were done in Old Testament times, in the biblical times. Uh, We see treaties that are being formed. And what we're going to see in this particular passage is Joshua uh, and the Israelites, the leaders of the Israelite nation, uh, are in the middle of two different treaties. There's two different relationships that are competing for their allegiance. And what I want you to to recognize, they're being... They're trying to be faithful, but they're caught in the middle here, right? What I want you to recognize is what do they do, but also what is God's role in all of it? So that's what we're going to be looking into. Joshua chapter 9, the Gibeonite deception. By the way, let me just say deception. That word just, it it throws off uh, bells in in my head. Deception is one of my greatest fears as a Christian because I don't know what's happening, right? If I am deceived, then I don't even know it. I could believe I'm doing the right thing. I could believe I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do and be deceived and still be sinning and going against what God wants. So what is, what is it that we can do about that? We've really only got two weapons against that. We've got prayer, so that we ask God to reveal it to us. And then we have each other. We have accountability. We have other people in our lives that can help us see those things that we can't see. This is why, Chad mentioned life groups earlier, this is why I believe so much in life groups in our church. And let me just say, if you are not in a life group, Chad's already said it, you need to get in one. Because you could be deceived about what you believe in and what the way you're acting. And life groups can help you see those things and make the right 
changes, you know? All right, so Gibeonite deception. Chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Joshua and Israel have been going into the promised land and they are conquering city by city by city. And all of these, these countries, these groups of people have heard about it. So they decide that they're going to come together and fight as one. Verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I... They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. I've got to have a little bit of backstory here. Uh, first of all, Exodus chapter 23, God has already told the Israelites not to make peace with anybody in these lands. In Deuter Deuteronomy 20, he tells them to completely destroy these cities, leaving nothing alive. He says, destroy them. He says, no treaties. He says, no mercy in Joshua chapter, or Deuteronomy chapter 7. God was very serious about this, and he explains himself, saying that if they leave someone alive, then their detestable ways and the worship of their little g-gods will seep into their culture. God didn't want a divided allegiance with them. As he developed this relationship with his chosen people, he was serious about perfection, about purity. He didn't want to have to compete for their faithfulness. He was serious about their faithfulness and took every precaution to set them up in a good place, laying a foundation for their faithfulness to grow. You see it? A little more backstory. In those days, there were two different types of treaties that were being made. We just kind of saw one of them. All these countries come together and they, they bond together so they can fight against Israel. That's called a parity treaty. Um, and it was basically usually a group of nations or city-states that were similar in size and similar in power. And they would come together and basically just say, I got your back, you get my back. It was, it was very equal, Right? And they could have several of these kind of treaties with all kinds of different nations together, and they would all kind of look out for one another. And that's what's going on with this, this first example of this group that's going to come against Joshua. The second type of treaty is, is called a suzerain and vassal treaty. And it's a little bit more nuanced, so let me, let me explain it. So it says suzerain-vassal treaty is a bit more nuanced. The suzerain, he's the greater king. This is a greater nation than a smaller nation. He's the greater king, the suzerain is, and he commits to protect and look out for the interests of the vassal, the lesser king. As long as the vassal pays tribute, and looks out for the suzerain's interests, He's going he's gonna to cover them and watch over them. Since the vassal has so little power in comparison, he's at the mercy of the suzerain 
and must be careful to adhere to every command precisely. In this treaty, the vassal must remain faithful to the suzerain, the greater king's every wish. He would also be considered treasonous if he made any other treaties. Suzerains were jealous. Suzerains were not known for mercy when the vassal stepped out the wrong way. If you were a vassal to a suzerain, you were very careful with the way that you behaved. Go back to verse 6. Do you see it? When they come to him, what are they requesting? They're requesting a suzerain vassal treaty. You see it? They had heard about God. They heard what he was doing. And so they decided that instead of being in this parity treaty and joining with this other group that's going to come against Joshua, that they would opt out of that and go for the off chance of maybe we can trick them into this other kind of treaty where we could serve them. It's better than dead, right? I mean, that's what was going to happen if they came against Joshua. They were seeing that death is, is worth the, the ine- inevitable, right? And so they said, well, let's try this. And so they came and they were going to, to aim to be servants rather than dead. Um, look at verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? See, here we know the Israelites knew they weren't supposed to make treaties with people in this land. Verse 8. They said to Joshua, We are your servants. They're coming to them as the weaker party. They're coming to them saying, you know, we want you to be uh, the suzerain. We're the vassal. That's why they say, we're, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for, for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. These garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Several years ago, my, uh, my son, Kason's sitting right over here, um, we, had, we had some friends, the Palmers, some of you may know the Palmers, they were encouraging us to get involved in LJST, Lake Jackson Swim Team. Uh, they wanted us to be involved in the swim team basically so we could hang out with each other because uh, we were friends with them and, and we had this great relationship. So uh, they were encouraged us to get involved. So my son, Kaysen, he was just then old enough to, to become a part of the team. So we go and we get involved and we go to a, um, a clinic where they teach the kids how to swim. 
and they teach them a little bit about the strokes, and there are literally hundreds of kids in the pool at a time, and it's just mad chaos, really. Um, but at the end of the clinic, the kids try out for the swim team if they want to. So Kaysen goes, and he tries out. And he's just a flailing mess. I mean, it's just not pretty. Uh, and, and the guy who is, is the coach, he, he says, we're sorry. Uh, you have to have a recognizable stroke. That's how bad it was. It wasn't even recognizable what he was trying to do. Um, you have to have a recognizable stroke in order to be on the team. But we'll give you two weeks. You can go and practice, and you come try out again in two weeks. Um, we were not all that keen on swimming. It was not our thing. We, we didn't really care too much about that. Um, but I saw something happen to my son. Like, he, Kaysen was, he's pretty much good at almost any sport he tries when he first starts out. But this is the first thing he was not good at, right? And he just wanted to quit. Like, immediately, he was done. Okay, we don't have to be on the swim team. He didn't, he didn't care at all. And I just thought to myself, man, I don't want to have a quitter as a son, you know? Just because it looks bad, just because it looks like he can't make it, doesn't mean he can't. And I want to show him that with a little faith, with a little work, you know, maybe something else can happen. So we spent the next two weeks, and we were at the pool every day, sometimes a couple of times a day. Uh, we had uh, a friend that came, and we hired him to, to coach Kaysen and teach him the strokes. And he was still kind of a mess. But he tried out that second time, and I, I believe the coach was just really gracious and let him, you know, let him do it, because he could see that he had worked. Um, he made the team that year, he qualified to go to state, and he was the seventh fastest backstroker in his age division at the state swim meet. Two years later, he got the state record in the backstroke for his age group. Yesterday, he qualified for state again. Um, a little faith can make the difference, right? Um, we could have lived by sight or we could have lived by faith. That was the moment that we were in. By the way, the same thing happened to my daughter. She tried out and was a mess and didn't make it. We went back and tried again. So the same thing happened with her. She made state again this year as well. So I have to mention that. I don't want her to feel left out. So, um, You can live by sight or you can live by faith. There's a guy named Tim, Tim Keller. Actually, Chad quoted him on Facebook earlier this week. Uh, Tim Keller is a ex-pastor, I guess, at this point. Um, but he, he's, he has an illustration about an acorn. You got a little tiny acorn. And if you see an acorn on the ground and there's a big stone, a big rock on top of it, you look at that and you say, who's going to win the battle? The rock's going to win the battle, right? It's huge. And a tiny little acorn. Live by sight. The rock wins. But you live by faith and you realize that acorn is going to go into the ground and some water is going to come and that's going to grow into a mighty oak. And that mighty oak is going to grow up and it's going to just toss that rock to the side, right? You can live by faith or you can live by sight. That's the problem here, right? Do you see it? Joshua and the leaders were living by what they saw. They brought all of these, this moldy bread and all this stuff and they saw these people from a distant country. But it was a lie. 
These guys are basically just a bunch of trick-or-treaters, right? They're showing up, saying, we want this from you. And Joshua gives them the candy. He gives them the candy. Think about Joshua and the Israelites here as well. Joshua and the Israelites were already in a suzerain vassal treaty with God. When they make this treaty with the Gibeonites, they're already in a relationship with God. It started with the Ten Commandments, right? With Moses, who was Joshua's predecessor. The Ten Commandments were formed, and, and that's when God set up a suzerain vassal treaty with them. God was the suzerain, and as his vassal, his subordinate, it was their job to follow his requirements. That's what the Ten Commandments were, right? His requirements. God even used the ancient structure of the typical suzerain vassal treaty, the way it was written up, to give them the Ten Commandments. They were already familiar with how treaties work, and so he used that to show them their role in the relationship. It was their job to pay tribute and to support his interests. To do what he asks. He was establishing the boundaries and the ground rules for their suzerain treaty. And more importantly, he was establishing the ground rules for their relationship. Just like we do with our marriage vows, right? We set up these rules, these goals. When they failed, when they, when they gave Joshua the candy, or gave the Gibeonites the candy, so to speak, when the treaty... Without consulting God, they ignored their relationship with God. God was the suzerain, right? Suzerains don't have to have any mercy in this culture. He has every right to be angry. Yes, it was a mistake. They just overlooked it, right? They were going on what they saw and they made the decision without consulting him. It was truly a mistake. It was a sin of omission. But it was still betrayal. Like the man that cheats on his wife. They chose someone else over God. I'm not sure somebody can unintentionally cheat on his wife, but he can unintentionally betray some confidence that they share. Can we unintentionally cheat on God? Yeah. Of course we can. Like the Israelites, all of us were guilty. Sometimes we're deceived and choose unfaithfulness. Because that's what deception can do, right? Makes us choose unfaithfulness. Or sometimes we're just flat out rebellious and choose unfaithfulness. This summer, I have I have not been in church as often as I would have liked. Taking some vacations. But I've also uh, spent some time with my brother. My brother's in a hospital up in Dallas right now. Um, He has a problem with alcohol. Growing up, he drank socially and um, was able to control things. He was a highly functioning alcoholic for several years. Um, And in those days, everything seemed okay. We didn't really even know there was a problem for a while. 
But eventually we started noticing and, and there, it became an issue. And so I went to him one time and he said, it's not a problem. I can handle this. I haven't tried to stop drinking. That's deception, right? He was deceived. He really believed that. I know that he really believed that. It just wasn't true. He was deceived. But eventually, it continued, and I had another conversation with him, and he said, this is not an exact quote, but it's pretty close. Steve, I'm choosing alcohol over my family. That was rebellious, right? Both are unfaithfulness. You're deceived, but then it progressed to become rebellious. He knew it, and, and he wasn't proud of it. Let me be clear, he wasn't proud of that. But he knew that that's, that's the choice that he was making. It's now landed him in the hospital. He's, at this point, he's lost, um, I guess, lost his job. And then he lost another job. And now his wife has divorced him. And he's been kicked out of the house. He's lost a lot. And now he's in the hospital um, fighting for his life. Um, but as a result of him being in the hospital, you know what's happened? Sobriety has happened. And a mind that is clear has happened. And I've been able to have some great conversations with him. And he sees all of it now. And he is, at his level, he is trying to go back to God. That's faithfulness. Faithfulness returns, right? He shared with me, um, he's been reading a, several books, but there's one by Max Lucado called um, Anxious About Nothing, I think is what it's called. And he share, shared a story from there. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. It says, this, this is from Max Lucado talking about a trapeze artist at the circus, that guy. And the trapeze artist says this, the secret is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, my catcher, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron. The worst thing that the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grabbed Joe's wrists, I might break them or he might break mine and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. That's what my brother said he's trying to do. To learn to trust that the catcher will be there for him and to fly with outstretched arms. It makes me very proud to know that he at least recognizes that. And he's got a long ways to go. And, and, and it may not, we may not be through this. But faithfulness returns. And that's what he's trying to do. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of him for that. Alcoholism is not who he is. It's something he's done. It's something he can be forgiven for. And let me say that to all of you. 
Whatever sin it is that's in your life, it's not something, it's not who you are. In Christ, we are not our sin. We are holy, right? We have the Holy Spirit within us to be faithful. It's not who we are. It is something we've done. It is something that can be forgiven. It is something that you can get past. It doesn't define you when you are in Christ. You see it? Back to our story. Verse 16. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And, Israel, and the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chephirah, Beeroth, and kirith Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Verse 18 says they murmured against them. I got to say... A murmur among God's people? Come on. It's not just a murmur. Right? Y'all been in the church long enough to know murmurs grow quickly. Right? Anger happens quickly. I worked in the church for 20 years. Murmurs are, are not just murmurs. It's bigger than that. And, and it's, got, it's got to be... You got to stop it quick. Right? I love... Um, the way that Joshua and the leaders handle it. I, I mean, you think about it, what, what are the people wanting to do? This murmur is basically, let's ignore this treaty. It's a bad treaty anyway. Let's just kill them and be done with it. That's what God wanted us to do in the beginning. So they're, 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 they're trying to, to say, it's a bad treaty. There's no reason that we need to honor this thing. Surely there's no requirement from God at this with it being a bad treaty in the first place. They lied to us, right? I don't know about you, but I see myself there because they're justifying it. I'm a good justifier. I bet you are too. What are the ways that I justify my faithlessness? What does it take me to blow off my time with God? How many times do I blow off my time with God because oh, I'm going to church today. That's what I tell myself. I don't need to spend time with God because I'm going to church today. I'm already going to have time with God. Or maybe I'll say to myself, it's a bad time. I'm in a bad mood. It's not going to be productive. I'm not going to spend time with God. What about I'm not going to go to church because I haven't been there in a few weeks and I'm embarrassed that I've been gone so much we justify all kinds of things don't we I don't want to go to life group those people are weird if you're in my life group you're right <laughs> we're weird <laughs> we're good justifiers 
Joshua and the leaders, though, what do they do? They don't appease the crowd. They don't appease the crowd. They stand up. They say, two wrongs don't make a right. They say, this vow was to the Gibeonites and to God. Verse 19, it says, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. These guys are men of character. They stand up against the murmuring, which has grown to more, I'm sure. Um, and they do the right thing. It was right and honorable for them to hold to this promise. Um, as a matter of fact, many years later, this oath would be broken by Saul. And God would bring three years of famine upon Israel for breaking it. This oath that they were going to just justify and say we can ignore it, God was so serious about it that later on when it was broken, he brought three years of famine on the people. I don't get it. I mean, I don't understand why God would do that, but God's ways are not my ways. He has other purposes that we may never know. Israel had... Joshua, the leaders, Israel, they had a treaty with God. The Ten Commandments is where that started. God was the suzerain. They were unfaithful to their suzerain, and God had every right to destroy them. But what does God do? They were his people. He shows them grace. Do you see it? They don't really, there's really no consequences given to them other than the fact that the Gibeonites are now going to live among them and serve them. There's no consequences. God shows grace. But this is the Old Testament, right? Wrath is what we see in the Old Testament. God destroys. Matter of fact, that's what he's having them do. Grace is not something you see in the Old Testament. But God is dealing with His people. With His people. He's in relationship with them. God cannot betray Himself. And when they are His people, they are His and He is Himself. He cannot betray His people. Do you see what I'm saying? He chooses grace for those who are in relationship with him. God doesn't really seem to address the situation. Ultimately, he even uses them because the conquest of the promised land continues because of this bad treaty. God is sovereign and he knows what's up. And he has a plan when we don't see it. John Calvin, he says, Our faithlessness cannot in any way detract from the Son of God and His glory. Being all-sufficient in Himself, He has no need of our confession. It is, as, it is as if He said, let all who will desert Christ, for they deprive Him of nothing. When they, per when they perish, He remains unchanged. Max Lucado says, God is faithful even when His children are not. God is faithful to his children even when they are not. When we are faithful, 
He is faithful. When we are faithless, He is faithful. He is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithful... Oh, sorry. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Does that mean He's always faithful to us? No. But if we are in relationship to Him and He can't deny Himself, then yes. Do you see the difference? The difference is relationship. He cannot deny himself, and if he's in relationship with us, then he's not going to deny us either. Do you see it? Relationship is key. Relationship is critical. Critical. It's of utmost importance. Without a relationship, him, without the vows, we have no treaty. No promises, and he has no obligation to us without the relationship. So here, if you tally it all up, here's what we have. The Gibeonites, they had a, a parity treaty, and they abandoned it to, to seek after this other deceptive treaty. <laughs> then Joshua and Israel, they had a treaty with God, and they deny it, and when, whenever they accept the treaty with the Gibeonites, they deny their relationship with God and that treaty. But God is gracious. And they then, um, they stay true. They go back, right? That's when, when they remain true to the vow, even though it was not what they wanted to do. Even though it wasn't convenient for them. And then God, he's faithful through it all. Right? So what does it mean for us? What behaviors should we strive for in order to be faithful? What are the stipulations on our treaty with God? Is it the Old Testament Ten Commandments? Some might say so, but I'd say officially no. We are New Testament believers and that Jesus has changed all of that. However, Jesus made it harder. The Ten Commandments were repeated in the New Testament, but at an even higher bar was raised. Um, consider some of the New Testament teachings that Jesus had. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Certainly, this is one of the stipulations, right, for us. In the parable of the talents, Jesus refers to the good and the faithful. They are the servants who invested and reproduced out of the things that had been given to them. In Luke 16, Jesus taught that those who are faithful with little can be trusted with more. And in the story of the prodigal son, we see a young man who destroyed everything and is completely unfaithful to his father. But when he returned, because of their relationship, the father was faithful. He was accepted right back in. 
Guys, this whole sermon, this, everything that we've said today about Joshua, uh, I could have taught the very same thing using the good, I mean, the prodigal son story. Right? Because it's the same story. Joshua was unfaithful when they chose not to, when they chose to live by sight rather than uh, consulting God on the situation. And God was gracious. Prodigal son, just bigger, right? In our, in our terms, bigger sin. There is no bigger sin. It's sin is sin is sin. But in our minds, it's bigger to you know, take all of your, your father's money and go destroy your life and then come crawling back. I chose to teach this using the Joshua passage because I relate to Joshua a little bit more these days. Don't get me wrong, I, I, I have some, in my past, I have some prodigal son kind of moments in my life. Um, I once took a bunch of my parents' money so that I could buy a car thinking I'd get a whole bunch of dates with that car. And, um, well, let's just say it was going to take a lot more than a car. <laughs> that was one of my prodigal son moments, right? But these days, my sins are more justifiable, more acceptable. Like Joshua who just forgot to consult God. It's the things that sneak up on me these days. God's holy and perfect and the little things matter. We are all prodigal sons and Joshua's. Big or small, we're all sinners. We've all been faithless. We get it right sometimes, but at least for me, mostly I get it wrong. Faithfulness, however, isn't about the choices that we make. It's not about the right or the wrong, the righteousness or the sin. Faithfulness isn't even the standards or the bars that are raised. Faithfulness is the grind. Faithfulness is the grind. It's the going back. It's the going back to him even in our sin. Faithfulness is about the relationship. It's about choosing to stay with him. Even when you're embarrassed and ashamed of your actions, faithfulness is asking forgiveness and repenting. Faithfulness is showing up to worship after a really long absence or after a short absence. Faithfulness is grinding it out and showing up in your relationship with God. Faithfulness is the prodigal who returns. Whether he's been separated from God for a long time or even just a short time, or if he just forgot to consult with God, faithfulness returns. Returns to God in spite of how you feel or how much it will cost. Faithfulness returns to the straight and narrow. Faithfulness returns to the word of God. Faithfulness returns to purity. Faithfulness returns to godly relationships. Faithfulness returns. Faithfulness returns. Faithfulness returns. In order to return, we must repent. So faithfulness repents. In order to repent, we must turn from sin. So faithfulness turns from sin. This is how we maintain this relationship, right? The relationship is what matters. 
And the only way to maintain it is in repentance and returning to God. This is faithfulness. Big or small. The good news is that he's faithful in, even when we are not. When we return, he is gracious. When we return, he is gracious. You need to hear that. When we return, he is gracious. Like he did for Joshua, he offers us grace. As our suzerain, God has every right to destroy us, but he sent Jesus to be destroyed in our place, to pay the price for our sin, our faithless deeds. We're offered a new life in him, a life in relationship with him. If you're not a Christian, or don't know what that means, or maybe you, you know you'd like to begin a relationship with him, I want to encourage you to talk to somebody here. Make it known. Give God some space to begin to work. He is the suzerain. Or as we sang this morning, behold our king. He is our king. That's the suzerain image. He will protect you. He will adopt you and treat you as one of his own. He will provide for you. He will di discipline you, conform you into his likeness. And know this. He will work and he will reign and he will rule faithfully. Faithfully. Bow your heads with me. God, we come to you this morning and we are grateful for who you are. You are the suzerain. You are the king. You are the one who holds all things together. You are the one out of our relationship who offers us grace. We thank you, God, for all that you are. And we ask that you teach us to be faithful. You reveal those moments um, where we become like Joshua, we just forget to consult with you. Reveal those moments and give us strength by your Holy Spirit to choose you and to return to you. In the big moments, in the little moments, in all of our sin, we choose you. We return to you we confess our sin. And as you've promised, you will forgive and cleanse us from those things. Thank you for sending Jesus who makes it possible for that forgiveness. Thank you for the price that he paid for our faithless deeds. Teach us to be faithful. Forgive our faithlessness. Work in our lives. Reign in our lives. Rule our lives. 
We submit them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.